Hello and welcome to episode number 83 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, March 15th, 2010. Today we are joined by Christina Shi of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Extract Group, a co-creator of the Landman Report Card. The Landman Report Card provides tools to learn about Landman and their mineral companies through reading reviews submitted by users. It also allows users to submit their own report cards, contact with other users, and use the site as their own private diary of interactions with the oil and gas industry. Christina, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. So tell us, what is a landman? Um, a landman is the representative that an oil and gas company sends um, to contact the landowners. Um, so they're the first point of contact for most people uh, when they're dealing with the oil and gas industry. Um, and the responsibility of a landman is basically to negotiate the best deal possible um, for the company that he or she represents. Okay, so what is the rationale and importance of the Landman Report Card? Um, well, we created the Landman Report Card as sort of one of many tools that we envisioned um, would help landowners dealing with the natural gas drilling issue. Um, and this one was really for that initial stage of contact, which we felt was, you know, when most landowners were the most vulnerable. Um, that's the point at which most people have no idea what their rights or um what the laws are, what the companies are and are not allowed to do, what they are or are not allowed to ask for, and what the consequences of any of this is. Um, at the same time, the company has extensive amounts of research on, they know exactly where all the minerals are, they know um, how much people in the neighborhood are paying on average, uh, and they know how much everyone else is paying um, or being paid for their lease. So they have a lot of information that um, gives them a lot of power when they come into the negotiation. Uh, what we also found was that since many of the landmen um, were actually migratory, they, they would go through a region, basically deal with all the leases, and then move right on. There was uh, not a lot of accountability because by the time people realized that they had gotten a bad lease or if something, some problem came up, um, the landmen were long gone. And what we found was that companies would often um, claim that these were one-off incidents um, or, you know, just not be responsible for, for what their landman had done. Um, so our hope in creating the landman report card was kind of twofold. One is to increase the accountability of that first interaction um, and to really sort of make a public record of, the, the experiences people are having talking with the landman, not just the bad ones, but also the good ones, um, to show that there are best practices that can be followed, um, and also to help landowners find other people around them um, who are dealing with similar issues, or to read the stories of other people, maybe not from their community, but from somewhere else that's been dealing with natural gas drilling, and basically find out a little more about what the potential things are that they have to worry about. If somebody has had extensive experience with an oil and gas company um, and has already gone through this process with the landman knocking on their door, how can they use the landman report card to share their story? Um, so they would just go to the landman report card website, which is landmanreportcard.com. 
um, create an account, which is a very simple process, and then they can create a report that um, allows them to specify what landman or landmen, sometimes they send several, um, they worked with, what companies they represented, um, and the date of the interaction, the location of the interaction, and as much detail as they want to fill out. Um, it's a very simple form to fill out, and we give you also a, a variety of privacy options. So if you don't want to disclose exactly where um, your property is, you can just say generalize this address to the county level, and then the report will just be, you know, from whatever county you're from. Do you offer assistance to some folks that may not be quite so comfortable uh, using an online tool like the Landman Report Card and maybe help them get their information in that, or you don't offer any of that assistance yet? Um, well, the way that we try to structure this project is that we really, you know, being from Massachusetts, we're um, pretty far away from most of this action. Uh, the closest drilling we have to us is in upstate New York. Um, so our hope is that throughout this process, we've been working very closely with different community groups, um, including the San Juan Citizens Alliance in uh, Colorado and New Mexico, um, NeoGAP, the Northeastern Ohio Gas Accountability Project, uh, various groups in Texas and West Virginia, and our hope is really that by training a couple of people in each of those groups to use our tool, which we've done over the phone and sometimes in person, um, that they can then be the people in their community that can go around, host workshops, or even um, just, you know, be available to on the phone to answer people's questions if they need to make the reports. And has that, has that strategy been successful? Um, yeah, we've held a couple of workshops um, in, in various places, and people have come, and you know, they were they were people who um, sometimes really had not used anything like this before, um, and we were able to sort of coach them through the process, and that was part of um, our initial testing. So we've actually modified the website since then to make it even easier to use. So, how many landmen report cards do you have to date? Um, I think about twenty right now. Um, but we're hosting a series of – we're sort of doing outreach in a bunch of communities. It's pretty hard to um, get the news out about a tool like this because it's so specific in its purpose. Um, so we really sort of need to, to hit the communities where, you know, people understand that this is an issue and that it should be used. How does the oil and gas development and drilling affect renewable resource activities like farming and ranching? Um, well, that's a great question. So it it's really um, such a large-scale operation that there are really all kinds of ways that uh, oil and gas drilling can, can affect um, an activity like farming. So, for example, out west, um, water is obviously a very precious commodity, and um, a lot of the... Uh, gas operations right now are uh, using this process called hydrofracturing, um, which basically means that the gas is trapped in this layer of rock, and to get it to flow out, they fracture the rock by pumping an enormous amount of liquids into the ground. Um, I believe the legal limit right now for Colorado is um, each every time they frack a well, they're allowed to pump 10 million gallons of fluid into the ground. Um, now, regardless of what the contents of those fluids might be, which is an extremely controversial, you know, uh, subject, uh, 
that's at least a whole lot of water. And that water is recovered, but can't really be used again. Um, so it's an extremely water-intensive process. Um, it also has, there are a lot of potentials um, just because it's such a large-scale industrial operation for uh, things to go wrong. So, uh, you know, chemicals seeping into the groundwater, which can really affect farmers, um, or into the air. Um, so there's a lot of many different environmental impacts um, of the drilling operation. Well, I'd like to point out also that there's a lot of surface disturbance. Uh, one of the things that yes, we've noticed absolutely. in northern New Mexico is contrary to the claims of the gas companies, the well pads continue to get bigger and bigger, and they continue mm -hmm. to put more and more of them on the land surface. So that's land right. that's effectively taken and out technically, of... Go ahead. Technically, the companies have an obligation to restore that land, especially if it's arable land. Um, they have an obligation to restore that land to um, be usable after they're done. But it's incredibly difficult, especially in a, you know, a climate like New Mexico has to restore anything of that sort. You know, it's, uh, it, it took a really long time for plant life to sort of settle in there. And it's not after a big scale disturbance like that, it's really hard for farms to grow back. So we've talked to farmers who, you know, it's been five, 10 years since the drilling has stopped and they still don't have anywhere near the grazing grounds they used to. Well, I would say that those of us who are involved in uh, the permaculture and the holistic management community know that rehabilitating the land is possible, but the attempts that we see on the part of the uh, gas companies is usually half-hearted. Right. Um, based on, well, let me ask you, what should a landowner do when a landman comes knocking at the door? Um, that's a great question. We actually have a guide which is takes the form of a big orange button on the top right of our website uh, that addresses just that. But basically, the, the most important thing is actually just to not sign the lease the first time they come. Um, because regardless of what your best option ends up being, it's always really important to do more research on the consequences, on what your neighbors are, you know, whether your neighbors have had similar interactions, on what your rights are, on what kind of concessions you can get them to make. Um, so really not signing the lease the first time around and just doing as much research as you can to figure out um, on sites like ours or you know elsewhere on the Internet or by talking to other people in your community, figuring out all of the information to make the best decision you can for, for yourself and your family. Based on these past precedents and reports, why is it important for a landowner to be so careful and detailed in the negotiating process? Um, basically because, I mean, I guess the op optimistic view of it is that because you're dealing with um, such large companies, things can pretty easily get in the shuffle. <laughs> it would be the nice way of putting it. Um, but basically just that, these are very, very complicated leases. Um, some of them stipulate certain things, and the wording, the exact wording of them is really important. A, a lot of the times, uh, the way it works out west is that you don't get compensated. Um, it, the compensation works in a very complicated way, such that basically the amount that they offer you in the end isn't so much a legal amount that, um, the, the legal amount that they have to pay, but just like something that you work out contractually between um, you and the company. 
And so all of that information is extremely important to get in writing um, so that if something's wrong down the line, you can point to it and say, well, you know, we had this agreement, and then if you, if you want, you can take them to court. Um, but basically, otherwise, a lot of the regulations and sort of in-practice enforcement basically defaults um, in favor of industry. So landowners are, are really left without uh, much recourse if they don't have very careful documentation of exactly what their lease is. Since the Landman report card has been created, what patterns have you started to notice in the in the reports? Um, we've noticed a lot of interesting stories, definitely. Um, I, I would say that on average, so far, the reviews have been mostly fairly negative. <laughs> and I think that might just be because, you know, the people who are upset are just sort of like any review site. The people who are the most upset are the most likely to, to be writing reports at an early stage. Um, but a, a lot of the practices, and you can see this for yourself on this site, are rushing, um, trying to get you to sign your lease as quickly as possible, um, giving misinformation or or giving not you know, not the whole story of information, and people don't really find out until they either talk with someone else about it or maybe they don't find out until years down the line. Um, there are certain, and of course, none of these apply to all landmen, so these are just the bad eggs, but um, people who are who play games with their schedules. Um, so, you know, the two of you will have set up a meeting for this time, and it'll just keep getting postponed and postponed until... Basically, it's too late, or um, they come around and make a decision when you're not in the house. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the requirements that the oil and gas companies have to rehabilitate the soil, water, and habitat after surface disturbance. What are some of these requirements, and are they mandated by federal law? Um, they're not mandated by federal law. They're mandated by, um, as far as I understand, each state has its different um has, has different regulations about this. Um, I'm only very intimately familiar with Colorado, so I'm not really sure what the case is in New Mexico. But, um, I mean, the first thing I guess I should say is that at the federal level, natural gas has almost a free pass. Um, it's exempt from the Clean Water Act. It's exempt from the Clean Air Act. <laughs> it's exempt from about 17 different EPA acts um, that are, you know, for protecting the environment. And there's a lot of action in Washington right now to try to overturn some of these exemptions. Um, because right now, basically what's happening is industry can pump anything into the groundwater and not even have to disclose what chemicals they're using, which is one of the, the big issues that people um, are really up in arms about because they don't know what kind of toxic chemicals are going into their water. Um, but at the state level, so for rehabilitation, I know in Colorado um, there are separate rules for farmable land and non-farmable land, and um, the rules for farmable land are, are much more um, basically nice for the landowner than for non-farmable land because they, they recognize that this is an important industry to protect. Um, but a lot of that is I think on the um, shoulders of the landowner to actually demand certain types of rehabilitation or to document how um, the land was before the company uh, came in to, so that they can say, no, you didn't fully rehabilitate it. Um, but the, one of the problems that we found was actually that 
Um, the, the problem isn't so much that the laws aren't demanding rehabilitation enough, it's that there's very little enforcement um, and very little of a complaint structure that people can go through if, you know, the rehabilitation hasn't been done to, to the level that they wanted. Um, so in Colorado, for example, there's less than 10 inspectors for the entire state who are responsible for checking up on all of the complaints lodged by Colorado residents about the 88,000 wells that um, are, are in the state. That's obviously impossible um, because they also have to deal with every other aspect of those wells. And what happens is that there's actually not very many complaints um, on the state database of complaints because people sort of understand that there's not much recourse that is going to happen if they complain on, through some sort of official channel. So just in our travels, we talked to many people who had stories that belonged on that complaint database, but they didn't have any faith in the regu regulatory structure, um, and so they just didn't report it and chose to try to deal with it some other way. Yes, well, in the case of northern New Mexico, a lot of the folks who are ranchers up there, they actually have leases on BLM land. And mm -hmm. the BLM does require uh, some surface restoration and rehabilitation. But again, the problem is exactly like what you mentioned in Colorado and that the regular regulators are overwhelmed and some might even say captured by the oil and gas industry. So to say the least, they are very lenient on the surface restoration requirements. What are some strategies that landowners who have public leases can use to make sure that their lands remain uh, productive? Um, again, it's just sort of a matter of documenting, as at, at this stage, documenting as much as possible um, the, you know, what it was like before the industry came in so that there is um, a strong case of that, that they can present um, if the restoration doesn't go as planned. Um, and just being very vigilant about the wording of the lease, making sure that you're monitoring the company as much as possible in what they're doing. Um, we've heard cases of people where they negotiated a great lease with the company and then the company claimed that that um, lease never made it to them and so they just did something else altogether. And um, a lot of that will happen if, if there's not sort of constant vigilance. Um, and un unfortunately, right now, there isn't much they can do outside of that, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, legal action or anything, just that if, if there is a law, uh, a court case that they can be made out of it, then, you know, they have to collect all the evidence they can. So the Landman report card is now has several reports on it. Uh, are you seeing it being mm -hmm. used in creative and unforeseen ways, or are you still just trying to build up the database of reports? Um, we're certainly still just trying to build up the database, but we've noticed that people have started um, really taking advantage of the document sharing uh, factor of the component of the site, which um, we, are, we allow any landowner to attach any documents they think are relevant um, to, to their report. Um, and people, we sort of imagined that people would uh, attach things like letters that landmen had sent them or, you know, the leases that they had signed or something like that. But people are actually using it to share all kinds of documents like 
um, violations that they had gotten from the state about the company that had contacted them, um, which is information that's public but just not very publicly accessible. So by putting it on the site, they're um, making it much easier for other people to get that information. They no longer have to go to the state government. Um, so that's good. We're, uh, we've gotten a, a few, a, sort of a bit of interest from journalists who sort of saw the site and thought, great, this is a great way for me to get my uh, oil and gas stories from my area. If I just sort of monitor this, I can contact all of the people who make reports um, if they have interesting stories, and you know that's a, that's a good way for me to get my news stories. Um, those are really the two things that I, I would say. Um, but just other than that, you know, the stories that continue to pour in um, are constantly astounding to us. And we've been working in this area for about two years now, and we're always hearing <laughs> new kinds of crazy stuff, which is really interesting. Well, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are aware of the peak oil phenomenon. And as peak oil plays itself out, the urgency of the oil and gas companies is going to get, get ever more intense. Um, this means more drilling. It means more surface disturbance. And it means higher well densities per square mile, especially in gas fields. What conflicts do you foresee in the coming years between landowners and oil companies? And how can commit people that are committed to sustainable resource use prepare themselves for these conflicts? Well, I'd say if you want to see what kind of conflicts are going to happen, um, you know, look, history is a great place to start because this has been happening for the last 20 years um, in certain states, and it's just now starting in places like um, upstate New York and West Virginia and Ohio. Um, and I, I think really the main thing that we're going to see is a big marketing campaign, actually, on, on uh, the part of natural gas companies to try to in the same way that clean coal is trying so hard to push coal as a somehow more sustainable energy option, natural gas, um, I think, has actually been very successful doing that and will continue to push that, um, you know, that, that natural gas is a good, clean, safe option. It's the cleanest burning fuel or whatever. Um, and I think that a lot of people sort of, if not buy into it, then at least sort of accept it as something that they're not thinking about. So I think the most important thing for landowners is to just really keep telling their stories, um, make it very clear that this has ramifications for everyone beyond just the people who are living on the land or just the people whose farmland is being disturbed. It's not just that. It's that you know there's massive amounts of environmental damage happening, that there's crazy kinds of regulatory loopholes that are being built for this industry and that you know, it affects everyone's water, it affects everyone's air, and that everyone should just basically keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> so basically what what I'm getting, you know, what based on my own experiences with this and based on what I'm hearing from you and from what I've heard from others who have been really intimately involved in this struggle for many years um, is that a lot of these problems are structural. Uh, they've been built into these governmental and regulatory structures by the industry uh, on purpose, and it seems to me like the remedy that's being proposed um, by a group like yours is one of community activism and community okay. solidarity. Uh, would you would you care to talk a little bit about that characterization? Yeah, um, I mean, I think 
I think that the struggle to sort of uh, reform this industry, which, as you said, is, you know, there are a lot of broken things built into it, has to sort of come from multiple angles. Um, one angle is obviously trying to change those regulations. And there are lots of groups um, working very actively on that in Washington with varying levels of success. Um, I think one of the great boons of the Marcellus Shale being uh, being a big play now is that uh, New Yorkers are very up in arms and New Yorkers have resources and sort of like connections to Washington in, in a way that people out west have really been struggling with. But, you know, now you're seeing natural gas in the news all the time because the New York Times realizes that this is an issue that directly impacts their watershed. Um, so there's progress being made on that front. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it really is important for the landowners who are affected to be able, because they're really on the front lines. Um, they're the ones who see the problems coming, uh, who, who deal with you know problems that no one was able to foresee. And by sort of aggregating information about those problems, they're the ones who can then provide information to the lobbyists um, and say things like, you know, this is something that we really need to worry about. Can you get a law passed that will fix this problem? But without that data and without um, sort of that, that organization at the community level, we don't even have that information. And that's really um, what all of our tools are trying to do is to try to help information gathering at a community level. Because right now one of our biggest problems is that the companies have all the information. They, ha they know exactly what chemicals they're using. They know what those chemicals do. Um, and we know nothing. You know, not nothing, but like compared to them, we know very little about what's going on. But each individual person who's dealing with industry knows something. And so if we are able to collect all of that information across states um, and across countries even, you know, because this is happening in multiple countries, we might be able to paint a good picture of exactly what's happening um, and then be better prepared to deal with how to change industry to something that's more responsible and works better for everyone. But are, are communities at the point, especially in the western United States, you mentioned um, upstate New York and, and even the New York metropolitan area, but um, I wonder if communities in the western states have the capacity or the wherewithal to achieve this level of organization. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would say that I've met with a lot of community groups in the Western states, and they're extremely well organized. Um, if anything, the biggest problem there is that people get burnt out after 15 years of dealing with this. If, you know, their whole family is sick, there is this impulse to just say, you know, I realize that this is an important battle, but it's really, they, they get tired of it and they move away, and then they no longer are involved um, in, the, in the movement. Um, and that's something that, you know, no one can blame them for. But I, I think in terms of wherewithal and organization, uh, the West has been doing it for longer than everyone else, and there's been sub substantial progress um, in a lot of different places. It just requires, and, and, you know, like the West is really sort of, when we built the site, we imagined that um, the people who are just now dealing with landowner issues in West Virginia or Ohio or New York um, would be able to go on the site and read reports from people out west um, to find out exactly what happens. And right now the west is a great repository of knowledge. 
And it wouldn't be a great repository of knowledge if there wasn't an immense amount of organization happening. So I say don't sell yourself too short. <laughs> well, I appreciate you pointing that out, and um, I want to ask you if you've seen the, the new documentary movie Gasland. I haven't seen Gasland. I'm I'm looking forward to it, uh, but I, I've heard great things about it. It was one of the few times when you know uh, I found that my friends who aren't in doing the job that I do uh, were talking about natural gas, and they were sending me these videos like, "Did you know people's tap water caught on fire?" I was like, "I've seen that in real life." <laughs> so it was great that it was getting the amount of publicity um, that it did. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yes, well, uh, the director of Gasland, I, I believe, was recently on Democracy Now!, and I will link to that mm -hmm. uh, interview with him uh, on the show notes for this There's episode. There's another, actually, uh, documentary about similar issues that's set in um, western Colorado called Split State that also came out recently, and it's also a very excellent documentary. Could you repeat the name of that? Split Estate. Split Estate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I will uh, link to the webpage for that on the show notes for this uh, episode of the podcast as well. And naturally, Great. I will link to uh, the Landman report card so that people can get on there and read some of their reports. And um, if anybody's listening who actually has some experience with uh, the gas companies, then they can fill out a report and hopefully they will do so. Christina Shee of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Extract Group and uh, co-creator of the Landman Report Card. I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Christina Shee of the Landman Report Card. I wanted to take uh, the last few minutes of this podcast to read some listener email that I have received. If you'll remember Nelson Lebo, who was the featured guest in episode number 67 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, he wrote me after listening to episode number 46 of the Diet Soap podcast, in which I was interviewed by Douglas Lane. And Nelson wrote, In terms of permaculture in school science, I see four ways to make connections. One, ecological thinking a.k.a. systems thinking and holistic thinking. Use the study of ecology to develop ecological thinking. 2. Biomimicry. Use specific, cool examples of science used for sustainability. Some have big wow factors. 3. Using an understanding of science for local environmental problem solving. Everything from the laws of thermodynamics to hydrology to soil food web to IPM. 4. Permaculturalists as practicing citizen scientists. Show students regular local folks who use science every day to save resources, and usually save money, too. Some science teachers may get excited about one or some of these approaches to school science. This could lead to more connections and more opportunities. Creating mutually beneficial relationships between you and individual passionate teachers will feed both of your passions and pre help prevent burnout while we wait for a combination of crises that will be the masses on the board. I came up with this while riding my bicycle to teach permaculture in a local school last week. Turn the toxic trilogy, energy, environment, economy, into a transformational trilogy, education, empowerment, exercise. 
I've had success doing this with motivated adult learners, but self-absorbed 14-year-olds are a different story. Well, this uh, sounds very similar to what Rob Hopkins is proposing with the transition um, the transition culture and the transition initiatives that he has been working with and, and talking about. So I think that Nelson Lebo and Rob Hopkins are very much on the same page, and Nelson is kind of giving this a, a more school-centered focus. Now, along similar lines, I received a message recently from a frequent listener to the podcast, uh, Paul, who is in um, El Paso, and he wrote me a letter about his experiences as a biology teacher in the community in El Paso. And Paul wrote, I've been trying to find ways of incorporating permaculture ideas and food-related issues into the biology curriculum that I teach at the community college. So far, the most success that I have had in getting students to participate in a, practi in a practicum of kitchen farming and culturing of nutrient cycling organisms, where I have the students make sauerkraut, culture kefir, grow mushrooms, grow organic vegetables, raise red wiggler worms, and knew this year I am going to try to get into the black soldier fly culturing. I recently picked up the book Outdoor Classrooms, a handbook for school gardens by Nuttall and Millington, bought from the Permaculture Institute of Australia. And that book gives me encouragement that school gardens are indeed possible and beneficial. Australian culture is a bit more amenable to gardening type ideas, I think, but perhaps our regional culture will catch on soon. I've been talking about starting a wellness garden at El Paso Community College that would educate about the permaculture principles, the advantages of local commerce, water harvesting, and the problems of peak oil, topsoil loss, diabetes, pollinator declines, and climate change. I show the movie called Food, Inc. and Botany of Desire in my classes, and the students show a definite interest in the agricultural system and are struck with a desire to do something about the poor quality and socially unjust and environmentally destructive food that has taken over the food system. They also seem to respond with a biophilia response when you take them out of the inorganic electronic world for a while and begin to go back to source and use more tactile approaches with the biological subjects that I teach about biology. I teach biology, so you would expect biologists to take an interest in life forms, but I also teach biology for non-majors, and many of the pre-education students see the fun and potential of this sort of work. As you mentioned, the case is solid for setting sustainable local food as a foundational, as a foundational topic and resource for our schools. The potential for this to take off is there, and when it does, I think it will spread rhizomatously. Well, Paul and Nelson, thank you very much for your comments. Thank you, everybody, who has sent comments uh, or commented on the comment thread for the podcast. You can comment on this or any other episode of the Agro Innovation Podcast at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. There are links to my Facebook page on the homepage for the Agro Innovations Podcast. So please continue to participate. And until next week, this is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos. Saludos.